Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New York Institute for the Humanities podcast, now at the New York Public Library. I'm Robert Boynton. Todd Gitwin was president of the Students for a Democratic Society and went on to become a sociologist, political activist, and journalist, teaching at Berkeley, NYU, and Columbia. He wrote 16 books and in 2007 spoke about his book, The Bulldozer and the Big Tent, Blind Republicans, Lame Democrats, and the Recovery of American Ideals. He died in February 2002. A personal note, I wasn't planning to spend this decade at at the pursuit at which I've been spending much of it. When George Bush was just a remote cloud on horizon, I thought I had said my piece about politics and I was on to writing novels and pontificating about the media environment. So I take personally the hijacking that I feel I experienced. I felt in 2000 that I'd been lifted by the scruff of my neck and forced once again, this seems to be the story of my life, to face our common condition, which needed not only to be opposed, but to be understood. I took it as something of a starting premise that something so enormous in its consequence as the Bush ascendancy needed more than a gesture of dismay and even more than an intense revulsion, although I certainly experienced both. It needed some extended act of understanding. So what I'm going to present for you is a sketch of that understanding, which I elaborate in this book. This is not so much a book of thesis as a book of landscapes, but there are theses in it. And one of them is that in contemporary politics, the crucial question that has to be worked out by any political tendency is the relation between two essential elements that are part of its makeup. Any political tendency includes a party and a movement. I think of the movement as made up of outsiders, amateurs, passionate, disorderly, clamorous. I think of the party as made up of professionals, insiders, structured, organizing themselves in order to acquire and use power. The movement is suspicious of power, and the party is power. The movement belongs to amateurs, as I said, people who act on principle. The party is a vehicle of politicians whose primary goals is to secure and re-secure power, to create careers. What came to me in my attempt to understand what had befallen us was that the right had solved the problem of the relation between its movement and its party. And it had actually solved the problem 40 years ago. And what came to power in 2000 was the culmination of that intelligent appraisal of hard reality on which the right acted. Just a word on how it came to pass that the right properly juxtaposed its movement and its party, or really incorporated them. This is a sidebar on the ancient history of the moment at which the movement conservatives and the Republican Party found each other. This is a story about the early 1960s, at a time when fundamentalist Christians of the right had 
just barely begun to enter back into politics after decades in retreat from politics, basically since the 1930s. I'll come back to them in a while. The contemporary movement conservatives were in the hands of right-wing fanatics of whom the best known were the folks of the John Birch Society. And they proved adept at organizing a, a political infrastructure in Southern California in the 1950s. They had uh, bookshops called American Opinion. Some of, some of you may remember them. They had coffee clutches. They had local political campaigns. They were especially well uh, set up in Orange County, California. And this story is uh, to be found in a nifty book of history uh, by Lisa McGurr called Suburban Warrior. She went back years later working on her dissertation, found a lot of these people who were still going and interviewed them. Very illuminating book. So these were people who believed with the John Birch Society that they were dispossessed, that communism had actually taken over America, that Dwight Eisenhower was among the communists, and that the United Nations was a, an extraterrestrial force of malign uh, import. And they set out to begin to elect members to office. The first issue on which they campaigned for local school board somewhere in Orange County began from the horror they felt on discovering that UNICEF was collecting money at the local junior high school for uh, Thanksgiving, I think it was. Uh, it's UNICEF, the United Nations, the demonic, etc. So their actually first successful political campaign was a campaign to put somebody on the school board to resist this. From that beginning, I think that's 1957, they begin to create an apparatus that takes electoral politics seriously. Unruffled by the Republican defeat in 1960, by 1962, they are strong enough to nominate a candidate for the gubernatorial primary in the Republican Party, a right-wing broadcaster from Los Angeles, sort of foreshadowing of Rush Limbaugh. Unfortunately, they were defeated in the Republican primary then by the moderate Republican whom you might have heard of, Richard Nixon. And in the wake of their defeat in this drive to take over the Republican Party, they seriously contemplated a third-party run. They were ready to conclude that the party was hopelessly, in their terms, corrupt, staid, conventional establishment, etc. So those who wanted to exit and to become a third-party operation went to see their prime fundraiser, who was a man named Walter Knott. You may remember Knott's Berry Farm. Walter Knott was a, was a wealthy farmer in this area, and they put this proposition to him, the whole analysis that I've just sketched. And he said to them, don't be nuts. And he explained to them the solidity of the American two-party system, that it was a presidential system, that it was rigged for various constitutional ways for a two-party system. So he said, look, you've had a reversal, and it's a pity that Nixon is now the standard bearer of the Republican Party because he's really a Northeastern Rockefeller Republican. But just get back to work and uh, keep your eyes on the prize. So they did. And within two years, they had taken over the not only the Republican Party of Southern California, but of the entire state. In 64, they were instrumental in nominating Goldwater for the nomination. 
from that debacle came, of course, the Reagan moment. Reagan was the phoenix from those ashes. Reagan was then spotted by right-wing businessmen in Southern California as a plausible gubernatorial candidate. He ran in 1966 as the incarnation of the anti-60s. That is, he ran against the free speech movement at Berkeley, hippies, and the Watts riots. And he became who he was. Subsequently, the intense dynamo of the movement conservatives recognized in Reagan a a sort of personification of its spirit and uh, ran him for the presidential nomination in 68, defeated, ran him again in 76, almost won the nomination, failed, went back to work. And in the period right after the defeat of Jerry Ford in 1976, Reagan gave a speech that for years been rattling around in my head as representing a certain sort of political acumen on the part of these guys. Because most of the analysis that I've just sketched for you very briefly here is in this speech of Reagan's. I don't know who wrote it, but somebody understood the landscape that I've described. And in this speech given to the American Conservative Union, Reagan says, conservatives, we have a problem. We are many. But we live in two camps. We are anti-government, pro-business, anti-tax conservatives in one camp, and we are social, moral, religious conservatives in another camp. Together, if we federate, we can win power. But we haven't figured out how to do that yet. And in effect, he offered himself as a human intersection of these two camps, the man who was the, the fusion candidate. And that was the spirit and the platform on the basis of which he was elected in 1980. To flash forward here to where George Bush fits into this, George Bush is the son of Reagan. George Bush is the will and representation of that conservative fusion. And interestingly, like the Reagan of 1966, he's also a man who is very much motivated by his passion to avenge his spiritual and social defeat in the 1960s. He has, in some of the journalistic biographies, commented on how shocked he was in the 1960s and by the 1960s. I think it's not hard to imagine the setting in which he would feel this way and would acquire a political identity on the basis of his rancor, because after all, he was a Bush. He was the third in a generation of Bushes to be ushered into Yale University. His grandfather, Prescott, senator, investment banker, and at that time, member of the board of trustees of Yale. His father, famously, not only skull and bones, but, uh, but a, you know, a success, a star, a war hero, a force at Yale University. And there, here comes George W. Bush to inherit his rightful place at Yale University. But it's now 1964. And the Bushes in, at Yale in 1964 are not the Bushes they used to be. And that's not simply because the genetic line is thinning out, or however you might want to characterize his personal qualities, but because it's 1964. And the Yale University he walks into is not the Yale University of his father or his grandfather. This is for the first time a Yale University that's filling with Jews. It even has some African Americans. And it is, of course, the time of the civil rights movement and the anti-war movement. Subsequently, the big man on campus is not young George W. Bush. It's John Kerry, 
this is not his world, and he feels dispossessed. He has actually acknowledged what I've said to you so far. My claim is that this is not just an incidental biographical fact, an idiosyncrasy, that George Bush is a man who has extracted throughout his life a mission built on an effort to recover from failure. He is a career-long failure. There's a phrase in Hollywood, or at least there used to be when I studied it, they talk about failing upward. That's a traditional career route of a, of a network executive. George Bush failed upward. And of course, he, I think, convinced himself and was recognized by those who were entranced by him, like famously Karl Rove, as an incarnation of will, a man who was a human bulldozer, whence the first part of my metaphor. George Bush, in his belief that will overcomes all obstacles, was consecrated to the mission of recovering from this defeat that the Bush family had been administered in his person at Yale University. I don't want to beat that one too hard, but simply want to say that by the time the movement conservative Republican synthesis was ready to contest seriously for power in the 1990s, Bush appeared as somebody who could be the incarnation of the synthesis that Reagan had identified as necessary. Both the Christian zealot and the business devotee. So the story of the Republican success, of course, has lots of other dimensions. The demographic spillover from the civil rights movement that drove the Confederacy into becoming a bastion of the Republican Party, the tax revolt of the 1980s and 90s, which enabled the Republicans to become the voice of the forgotten middle class in a certain sense, the Republican ability to carve out a sector within media that belonged to it so that it could use as an amplification system. It was as if a casting call had been sent out and George Bush had answered it and arrived. That's my sketch, anyway, of how George Bush got to be in the position he was. By In 2000, the machinery of politics that he was able to command via Karl Rove's intense understanding of the demographics and mechanics of politics was married to a, an unremitting commitment, thus, again, the bulldozer, to achieve power by virtually any means necessary. Meantime, what was happening on uh, what I'll be so bold as to call our side of the political landscape? Where were we while the bulldozer was on its way? Well, on the left side of American politics, the movement party synthesis had broken down quite dramatically, if you want to date for it, 1968. The liberal movement had fragmented what had once been a liberal movement. Really, the Democratic Party broke that year into three parts. The center, the labor movement part, the Democratic machine part represented by Humphrey, the right wing went off and became George Wallace, and the left wing, Kennedy, McCarthy, the new left, felt it was not its Democratic Party anymore, is an interesting counterfactual exercise. You could imagine 
that this history might have looked differently absent the Vietnam War, and I think there actually is as a non-zero chance that if everything had been played out wisely, that the party and its movement, the party of the liberal left, that is the Democratic Party, and the movement represented in the civil rights movement and the early new left and so on, might actually have remained in a tolerable marriage, if not one without strain. But the possibility of that history was exploded by the Vietnam War and the reaction to it. And the upshot was that by, again, I'm flashing quickly through a lot of tangled history here. By the early 70s, the democratic liberal synthesis, which had prevailed from first Roosevelt election through 1968, virtually unchallenged, had fragmented. So whereas the movement party synthesis had been achieved, it was in the process of being achieved on the right, the equivalent for the left was fragmentation. Whereas the Republican problem organizationally was how to federate two forces, namely the moral religious conservatives and the business conservatives, the left-wing equivalent was far more dispersed and unruly because the left included several movements or several contingents with some overlap, but a lot of pulling in separate directions. Sometimes I think there are eight factions. Where there were two on the right, there were maybe eight on the left. There was labor, which numerically was still the largest. There was the women's movement coming out of the 1960s. There were African Americans. There were Hispanics. There were environmentalists. There were feminists. There were people like ourselves who live in our sort of zip codes, whatever, you know, left, liberal, anti-war sort of people, generically speaking. And then another large constituency, the members of the so-called helping professions, teachers, social workers, nurses, and so on. Again, some overlap, but this was a much more unruly gang, and the center didn't hold. One reason the center didn't hold, one reason why this democratic movement synthesis or hope for a synthesis became unhinged was that unlike the right, we were not adept at producing leaders who could embody a sense of a whole, which could be a political force that could actually seek power. And here, I'm sorry Liz Holtzman isn't here today because I'd like to hear her reaction to this point. She knows this story a lot better than I do. One of the striking things here is how relatively maladroit the left here, using it very generally, has been at producing leadership when compared to the right. There's nothing in the history of the left of the last half century the like of the line that runs Goldwater, Reagan, Bush. I believe that one reason for that is that where the right is unambivalent about power, the right stands for power, the right believes in power, the left is ambivalent about power. They are the party that gets things done, that believes in governing. We like to think of ourselves, and I think this is true of intellectuals as well, and maybe even especially, as speaking truth to power. We distrust people in power. They actually crave it. If you're looking for a, a symbolic representation of the difference, I find it in one of the curious details of the hideous fight of 2000 in Florida. It's, I think, of some interest, at least symbolically. Two aspects are interesting. 
Number one, you remember that right-wing operatives from Washington and New York were flown in corporate planes to Florida to stop the vote. I'm talking about the period right after Election Day, before the issue had been dumped into the Supreme Court. And one thing they did was to actually organize riots at county electoral headquarters where votes were being counted. It seemed like some sort of marker in our collective political culture. I remember the moment vividly. It was the day before Thanksgiving 2000 when there took place at Miami-Dade headquarters where the vote was being counted by hand. What Paul Gigot, then columnist, now editorial page editor of the Wall Street Journal, celebrated as a bourgeois riot, his term. And he recounts that Congressman John Sweeney from upstate led the charge with the call, shut it down, reminiscent of the 60s. Now, while that was going on, the only figure anywhere near the Democratic Party who wanted to organize demonstrations in behalf of Gore and a total recount was Jesse Jackson. And you know that Gore told Jackson to cool it and not to organize demonstrations. So if you want a sign of who was serious about winning power at that crucial juncture, consider the difference between the bourgeois riot and the demonstrations that didn't happen. A second interesting example, I think, displaying something about different feelings about the need for political will. You remember that the Florida operation of the Republican Party was run by George H.W. Bush's consigliere, James Baker. Baker went to Florida, ran the operation. The Democrats' operation was run, one might have thought, in equivalent fashion by Warren Christopher, former Secretary of State, prominent Democratic Party lawyer based in L.A. Baker moved to Florida for the duration, for the, what was it, five weeks. Christopher didn't. Christopher commuted between his home in Los Angeles and Florida. Somebody said in the 90s when Christopher was trying to avoid war in Bosnia that I forget whose line it was. None of this would be happening if Warren Christopher were still alive. Um, the Republican Party cared about making their operation work in a way that the Democratic Party did not. And the result was that you know, Al Gore was the nice boy who accepted the decision by the five members of the Supreme Court and the rest is history. I take these differences to be representative of this pivotal difference that I'm talking about. The right's lack of ambivalence about power contrasted with the left's indifference. Now, there's a character I need to introduce in order to pursue this line of argument further, and that, of course, is Bill Clinton. Because Bill Clinton is overwhelmingly the single political figure who one might have thought, and who certainly wanted to offer himself in the 1990s as the embodiment of a movement party synthesis on the left that would be the equivalent of what the right had done with Reagan. Now, this may seem very odd to think of Bill Clinton in this connection because the left is deeply suspicious of Bill Clinton for many reasons, some of which I think are plausible. But Bill Clinton is actually a man of the 60s. He's on the practical end. He's on the party end of the 60s movements. He comes through the civil rights movement. He comes through the anti-war movement. 
you recall that very interesting letter that he wrote to the colonel in charge of his draft board when he was a student at Oxford. The Republicans had unearthed this, and it was published widely during the 92 campaign. Clinton trying to get an extra year, I believe it was, of latitude from the draft board, wrote a letter to the colonel explaining his motives. Very, uh, I think, gauche and unvarnished letter in which he says that while deeply opposed to the war in Vietnam and to other American policies, he is at pains to try to preserve his political viability in the future. And thus he explains himself. Well, I think that was exactly what he was trying to do. He wanted to be a politician. And that was, for members of his, which is close to my generation, rather odd endeavor. As most of you know, I was uh, very involved in the New Left. I knew maybe almost all of the leaders of the New Left. This was a very large movement. I knew maybe only one or two people during my entire time in that world who had the makings in their character, in their willingness to postpone gratification, in their interest in striking deals, in their taste for maneuver, who had the makings of political careers. And Bill Clinton, who I didn't know, would be representative of those very few exceptions who were on the practical end of this activity, and for whom a party was the culmination and the necessary condition for the fruition of a movement. So Bill Clinton in 92 offers himself under very unfavorable political circumstances as the man who would be synthesis. And it flopped. And I think probably given the tenuousness of of his political position, it probably had to flop. Maybe if he hadn't made the blunders he made with respect to the health care program, he flopped so badly. In any case, he only had two years to make a go of it. And then any possibility of corralling the fractions of the left, roughly speaking, into a continuing political machine were exploded by the Gingrich victory in 94, and that was essentially the end of the operation. You remember at one time early on in the Clinton administration, Clinton said something like, I want to have cabinet that looks like America. He was talking, I think, about racial diversity and women. But I would read that somewhat more grandly and say that he understood that the problem of fractions, the problem of distinct interests, was an incapacitating problem for the Democrats. It had to be overcome, and he thought he would try to do that. Well, it didn't play out. All right, toward the present and the big tent part of the argument. The bullishness, not in the Wall Street sense, but the ferocity, the unremitting quality of the right, which is embodied in the personality of George Bush, but is actually, I think, a feature of their whole movement spirit. Well, we know what it did when it came to power. It proceeded to act as though it was entitled to rule. And from its starting moment, it set itself the task of revamping the American state in all the ways that have become familiar. Privatization, belligerent foreign policy, the overriding of rational conduct throughout the civil service, the politicizing of the bureaucracies, the fusing of the normally rather unruly factions of the House of Representatives into a a very coherent machine, all this accomplished by the right. And the extremity of it, 
the wishfulness of it, the faith-basedness of that whole effort, eventually pulled not only the party but the country over a cliff. And this movement that had begun as a recoil against liberalism, movements of the left, secular humanism, as it was called, and so on, in turn, by overreaching, generated its own recoil. And we are now somewhere at the end of the beginning of that recoil. My way of understanding where we are politically, and it started to occur to me in 04, is that at long last, the Democratic Party has acquired a movement that believes in being a movement attached to a party. And that movement is what has come to be known as the Netroots. Entities like MoveOn.org with 3.3 million members, the whole so-called liberal blogosphere, the Howard Dean campaign, which morphed into the Howard Dean-run Democratic Party, which for the first time in modern history decided it had to have its own operatives. Believe it or not, in 2004, the Democratic Party had no nationally paid representatives working in the state of Ohio. That tells you what a shell the Democratic Party was. Howard Dean is actually responsible for trying to infuse the party with movement spirit. Again, party is structure, movement is spirit. A lot of that spirit has moved into the Democratic Party and while it failed to win an election in 2004, although some would argue it didn't really fail, it, I think, began to succeed in 2006. I did some work in the fall of 2004 in Scranton, Pennsylvania, which, of course, was uh, important for swing state reasons. Scranton is an old-line Democratic mm-hmm. town where, where there still is a Democratic Party that actually has an office and it's actually something of a powerhouse in the state of Pennsylvania. I went down as a volunteer on a busload from the Upper West Side, and it was interesting to see that you had two forces at work in the same campaign who were actually getting along rather well with each other, although the Upper West Siders were Upper West Siders, and the local Democrats were Catholic working class and distinctly anti-abortion people. And they had all decided they were going to get along, and they did. And I took that to be some measure of recognition that the Democratic Party had to be a big tent in order to win, and that winning was now the game. I think in 2006, we saw many such alliances. Those who said that the blogosphere... One heard a lot of this from people like David Brooks, that the blogosphere was the sort of new left-wing banshee movement, actually missed the point. The blogosphere was united not by any particular political stance, but by a shared recognition that we were in a state of emergency and that while it made sense to run Ned Lamont, for example, against Joe Lieberman in Connecticut that if you were in Missouri, you didn't want a left-wing Democrat running for the Senate. You wanted a centrist Democrat, a woman named Claire McCaskill, who ended up winning the election. And the bloggers were just as committed to her in Missouri as the bloggers in Connecticut and elsewhere were committed to Vermont against Lieberman for what seemed like distinct political reasons. The shared recognition that came through 06, 
I think, was that the movement and the party had to be tightly knit, tightly connected to each other. And I think, despite all the tremors of the period since uh, the new Congress came in in January '07, despite all the anxieties and angers about this maneuver of Nancy Pelosi's or that maneuver of Harry Reid's or this, you know, the angers at Hillary Clinton and others at various points, I think that there's now something of a general recognition within the party and the liberal movements that they had better hang together or they will hang separately. So where we are, I think, is perhaps in the process of constituting a movement party synthesis that would be for our side the equivalent of what Bush and the movement conservatives arranged on their side. Not that it will be peaceful. One thing that will go on under the big tent is fights, and there'll be lots of them on lots of issues. But I think that the recognition of the importance of keeping the big tent standing was uh, intensely underscored by two developments, and I'll just conclude by mentioning them briefly. One was obviously the Nader campaign. If one needed to be reminded of the actual distribution of political force in America, well, we had a controlled experiment in what happens if you believe that the Democratic Party and the Republican Party are identical, which Ralph Nader, by the way, still does. And secondly, there is, I think, a recognition that whatever one's views about what should be done in Iraq or what should be done in other tangled and difficult, agonizing policy matters, I think there's a general recognition that while the country is, to some substantial degree, fed up and unified for now in its fed-upness by Bush and this catastrophic war, there's at the same time not much or maybe no illusion left that this is a country which, having been dragged into this radical right-wing regime, is ready for a left-wing revival. I think that the general understanding within these movements is that as thrilling as is the prospect of the end of the Bush reign, this is not a left-wing country. It remains true that systematically, since such polls began to be collected, that between one and a half and two times as many Americans call themselves conservative as liberal. And that even when you parse the data, and I have a whole discussion of this in the book, even if you parse the data to look at what people actually mean when they use these terms, and even when you recognize that there's a considerable number of Americans who call themselves conservative but are actually operationally liberal on a whole lot of issues, that is true of domestic issues. That's true on health care. It's true on spending. It's true on tax policy. It's true on spending for social services. It's true in sustaining social security and so on. The country is actually operationally liberal issues. But when it comes to security questions, this is not a country that wants a giant revamp, much as I would actually like one myself. And so political realism which is always discarded at uh, risk, would dictate some sort of principled realism. The effort to dig out from under the avalanche that Bush has left us under will be taxing enough 
to think that the defeat of the Republicans then ushers in sort of new New Deal, I think, would be pressing the point. But I do think that it's auspicious that the movement energies, the sorts of rambunctiousness and, and rebelliousness and principled verve, which you associate with movements, has, for the most part, come to understand that it is nowhere if it cannot include itself within a victorious party. So that's the line of the book, and I'll desist and uh, invite your responses. Of the many dwarves that are um, contesting for the Democratic nomination, which one do you think is the most promising? I'm not sure, actually. I'm not being coy. I'm actually more struck by the similarities among them than the differences. And I actually don't mean their dwarfishness. I think they're all, they, they are politicians. The three leaders are intelligent politicians. Well, certainly Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama are smart. And they don't actually disagree on a lot. I mean, Hillary Clinton, I think, would understand this perspective because she comes out of the movement world. And Obama, in his way, comes out of it. John Edwards is something of a different story. You know, I worry about each of them. I, I worry about each of them in somewhat different ways because actually getting the policies right, I think, is very difficult. None of them is the answer to the central casting call. None of them is self-evidently the right woman or man. Certainly Hillary and Obama are, I think, careful to steer away from any luminous promise about a transformed country. But where they agree, I think, is actually rather shrewd. If the Republicans are the party of privilege, then the Democrats must be the party of equality, or at least some universal underpinning. And a very distinct way of identifying universality is universal provision of health care. And so they have both formulated I don't know the details, but at least according to a doctor friend of mine, what are actually very similar and both universal and plausible plans that do not revamp the system in a single-payer direction, but it would actually achieve a good deal of universality in coverage. That, it strikes me, is elemental and important in what they're putting forward. And it should be achievable. And if either of them was so lucky as to be president and they didn't decide to fight it out in behalf of that program, I think there really would be hell to pay and I would be happy to help uh, deliver my fraction of it. I think that there would be a sense, in other words, from the party base that it's entitled to this entitlement. And let's get it on. Thank you very Thank much. You. <laughs> This podcast was brought to you by the New York Institute for the Humanities and the Arthur L. Carter Journalism Institute. You can find us on Stitcher, iTunes, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. For more information, visit us at nyihumanities.org.